this program to bring you a special report. Welcome back to South of the A and Happy New Year. Hope everyone had a fun and safe time. Espero que hayan cerrado ciclos y estén empezando nuevos con este nuevo año. What's your resolution? Did you complete the one from last year or did you sort of take a sabbatical because of pandemic? Honestly, it doesn't matter. I hope, I wish the best to you and to yours for this 2021. Que se te cumplan tus sueños. Espero que te hablen del trabajo que quieres. Espero que te vaya bien en la escuela. I hope that you accomplish all your dreams, even if it isn't during 21. Maybe it'll be 22, 23. It doesn't matter. It's about looking forward and being a better person than you were yesterday. That said, uh, we are back, baby. South of the Eight is back. Uh, honestly, I've been out of practice for a little bit. Um, I don't know why I took the break. I c think I kind of needed it, but it's fine. It's been it's been fun, but I missed it. I'm definitely out of practice. I've recorded this intro about 10 or 11 times. I actually did a couple bits over and over. Didn't like them, so I'm reverting to just a normal intro. <laughs> anyway, today we have a special guest, Carla Cordero. She's an amazing author from Calexico, but is residing now in San Diego. She's a poetry author. She's uh, an educator. She's an intellectual. She's uh, she's amazing. Honestly, I love our conversation. And it's what a bang. What a way to start 2021 for South of the Eight. Uh, that said, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. And like always, you can find me on my socials, that dude Vega on Instagram and Twitter and SOT8 podcast for anything for any questions any comments or recommendations or anything like that again thank you so much for choosing south of the eight today and i hope you have a good rest of your day enjoy the episode carla thank you so much for doing this how are you doing today Doing well, David, um, and thank you so much for having me. But doing good, enjoying my hot tea. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself so the people from South Korea can get to know you. For sure. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Carla Cordero. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I was born and raised in the border town of Calexico, California, which is right next to Mexicali, Mexico. Uh, raised there for most of my life and then moved up to San Diego when I turned about 18 um, to attend community college. First time navigating through college. Um, my parent, I'm first gen, so navigating through uh, the education system and then working my way to work getting my BA at um, Cal State San Marcos and then getting my master's degree at SDSU. And then from there, just kind of navigating and staying within the realm of education. And I'm now a professor at a city college in downtown San Diego, uh, Miracosta College in Oceanside. And then I'm super excited to make the return back to San Diego State in the spring um, for the Chicano, Chicanx Studies Department. Um, I am a published author, poet, travel all over the country and talk about um, how language can be a form of empowerment particularly for historically underserved youth and just kind of offering uh, those resources for um, different folks who might need it, uh, whether it be a nonprofit or a university. And um, that's kind of what I do, you know, a small little fraction of that and a lot of community outreach and service here in North County, San Diego. 
Wow. Well, there's a lot to uh, digest on that one. Uh, let's go ahead <laughs> yeah. and start with, um, so where you're from, right? You mentioned uh, Calexico, sure. correct? So mm-hmm. much like San Diego, very much a border town. Is there any differences or similarities that you see from the border town in Calexico, Mexicali versus San Diego, Tijuana? Well, I'll tell you this much. I know there's a level of intimacy, connection, history that I have with the border of Calexico next to Mexicali. And so there's a lot of culture, histories, languages, friendships, heartache um, that are home to me. Uh, When I moved up to San Diego, I can't say that I have the same relationship, but I can say uh, politically and in terms of an oppression of a people and in terms of applying a theoretical lens of border culture on who gets left out and who gets left in and the complexities between those two worlds and what happens when it comes together, mm-hmm. those relationships still coexist for a people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the border of San Diego, I don't have the intimacy yeah. of, of the one I had in Calexico. Nonetheless, I do um, validate and respect the complexities and the joys of those spaces. Definitely. I feel like growing up as a border kid myself, it's one of those things that it's hard to explain to someone that's never lived through it. You know, it's an experience that you don't realize it's um, specific to your family and to those around you until you, you go outside of it, you know, and you, you say, Oh, you didn't cross from country to country to country every other weekend. That's crazy. You know, and it's the little things that make you realize uh, for one, that made me appreciate being able to have that duality of culture for Mm -hmm. one, but also having the privilege of even crossing so many people are border kids and can't cross either because of their parents or themselves. Yeah. So it is a privilege nonetheless, but that's great. I mean, like you mentioned, maybe it might not be exactly the same, but the sentiment is the same. I'm sure. Absolutely. So then school, it seems like you've definitely, um, so do you like school? <laughs> I guess that's a better question. <laughs> it I mean, hasn't not, left me. So I yeah. must like a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But is that something you always envision into doing, staying within the educational system? Because I, I know that a lot of times, especially coming all the way to San Diego for community college, I mean, you've gone through almost all facets of school. Is that mm-hmm. something that stayed with you or is that something you learned you wanted to do later on? I mean, both. So early on, my mother ran a family business, a mercado in Calexico called Garcia Foods. Uh, my father worked at a hardware store as a manager for his whole life. And so they were always just parents that were supportive of the of the opportunities that education can bring and so that was this constant reminder that education was an important aspect of um, your life in terms of like continuing the journey of education you know after an aa or ba and and getting to my master's it was really harnessed and nurtured by a lot of mentors that i ran into within that pipeline And so completing an AA and then getting a BA and having one professor say, hey, I think you can do this thing called the master's. What the hell is that? (laughs) Let's work through it. And then going into my first master's class at graduate school and and working through it. And so I think my love for education just came through, again, the nurturing of mentors and the, the liberation and the understanding of my identity and the unraveling of, of, of education. Um, whether it be through Chicano studies or ethnic studies, 
uh, sociology, political science, literature, and the arts, and the various aspects of that subject matter that gave me a platform to ground myself in who I want to be and who I want to become. So then would you say that education uh, sort of brought or drew you in because of the knowledge behind it, you know, the wanting to learn, the experience, or was it, as you mentioned, you do a lot of outreach and things like that. Was it also in your head, maybe trying to help someone else or, you know, be the teacher that someone was for you, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time as a student, I definitely felt, uh, I guess I could say like an outsider. I felt who, you know, who am I, this border child going into, uh, you know, a classroom, outside of her hometown, trying to find purpose. And it really wasn't until various classes or teachers had put books in front of me that were written and illustrated by people that looked like me and experiences that lived uh, very similarly to me that I had not thought about keeping education in my life, but more so um, addicted to this connection that I was having with a lot of these authors, scholars, that really got me excited to want to learn more. Again, having more access to education was more an excitement to say, I want to share this knowledge with other people and I want to help other people like, um, you know, like myself, like a younger version of myself who didn't have access to education, who didn't have the right kinds of education to ground themselves in an identity that was beyond the term American. And so learning all that and the addiction of wanting to share it with others was something that really gravitated me towards keeping education in my life and, and becoming myself a mentor and an educator for others. Time and time again, I feel like when, um, when you're confronted with first generation kids, the idea of is college worth it is always brought up a lot. And mm-hmm. it's something that of course is very subjective depending on your goals and your sure. skills, talents and all that sort of thing. That said, even for you, someone that didn't just go to school, but stayed within school system, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Um, a lot of people think that when you go to school, you're going to be an engineer, you're going to make a bunch of money right out the gate. Right. You know, how do we explain to family members that, you know, it's a process. We're going to school. We like going to school. We want to better ourselves, but that doesn't mean there's going to be a paycheck at the end of the line. Now, there's, some, there's more to an education than just, you know, a payday. Right. And, and just to play devil's advocate on that narrative as well, I also have so many students trying to um, convince their, stu- their, their parents on why they shouldn't get an education because right, it's yeah. a waste of money um, and the fear of debt. And again, like you had said, David, or this idea of like staying in education, getting promised that diploma and that job that's going to be giving you that American dream, right? So we have these both narratives that students struggle with, especially um, students that have an upbringing with uh, migrant parents or being first gen and not coming from um, a background that have models of what education and success looks like. And so I guess what I would, just to back around is your question of like, what what would the conversation be to those to those students? Yeah, or what is it that you notice? Have you I don't know if you've encountered the situations firsthand, mm-hmm. but what is something that you notice is it has similarities or just something you'd sure. want to say to someone in that situation? Well, at, at least what I've encountered, I've been teaching for about six years, um, different demographic of students, and th- there seems to be kind of this primary vision. Um, of what education can do is one 
it's going to get me a diploma and my parents are happy. Yeah. Two, it's going to get me a really good job and I'm going to make a lot of that money. And three, um, it's what I'm supposed to do. It's what I'm raised to do, right? And a lot, a lot of times students end up being really disappointed because they've heard narratives from their other siblings or other family members where those things weren't promised, they weren't guaranteed. And I guess my, my words of wisdom to them is, you can't go through the education system without proper mentorship that can guide you toward the direction of what your passion is. If you don't know your passion, and you're going through a system, you're going to come out a robot, right? right. But if you want to go through the system and get something out of it, you need mentorship that's going to, again, um, help you find the passion within the system that sometimes is flawed. And thinking about education, not only a paycheck or a diploma, right? These are tangible um, things that we always aspire, but thinking about the liberation that we get within those spaces and thinking about taking that knowledge and applying it back into community outreach for those who don't have access to education and thinking about the lack of equity within our community. And so when we enter the space of education, how can we use these resources, this knowledge that we have at our hands to give back to the community at the same time, liberating ourselves from these social constructs of who we are, uh, that are always manifested and pushed upon us as we're growing up. And so education can offer those really, really good things. And that'd be on my, my advice, like get a good mentor. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many programs like Mecha and Puente, um, Emoja that are fostering these brilliant students and are taking this knowledge back into the community to serve them. So I hope yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. I feel like um, that's something that'll come up sometimes in a conversation with friends that I have that, Mm -hmm. go to college went to college or continuing education is okay. that you know it's about the holistic experience or more of a wholesome experience you know mm -hmm. being being able to take in discover new things about yourself new interests uh okay. college can sometimes be turned into sort of a yeah as you mentioned it you, you know people expect something right off the bat you know it's almost yeah. it's almost promised to you when you're in high school to be honest mm -hmm. and it's like the only way you can do it it's by doing this you know and there's right. no other option it's a little scary at times because um, that'll happen a lot too with people I know that didn't go to college, for example, myself mm -hmm. <laughs> working through it, but you know, here and yeah. there, but um, sometimes, you know, when, when you fail a class or you, you fail to continue going to school, it, it's scary because it's always in the back of my mind. You know, it's like my teachers always told me I wasn't going to do anything if I didn't go to college, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I, I understand they meant well, and it wasn't every teacher either, but yeah. it is this sort of um, fear that we have in the back of our heads and, Sometimes it even becomes sort of a your crutch because it says, "Why even go back? I'm not gonna finish. I'm nothing. Like I didn't. I'm not gonna do anything. I didn't do anything already." So, for example, for myself, any tips for maybe older, older <laughs> freshmen in college or anything like that? Well, one thing for sure is don't let ageism mm -hmm. kind of become the imposter syndrome of your return back to education. I have so many students who come in in their 50s and 60s in 70s and wanting to take this class or get this degree and if you can surpass ageism um this expectation of what age you should be to be right. getting this level of education if you could pass that and then move forward and tell yourself well what is my objective mm -hmm. and how my education be this resource uh, to be what it is you dream of so i mean you you got to be determined 
um, yeah, imposter syndrome and self-doubt are always going to be the monsters that haunt you behind the back of your head. And you need to examine who your support system is to continue to push you through what it is you want to do when you enter, um, you know, college or a college course again. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think if you have a clear direction as well, and sometimes we don't have clear directions and we discover that along the way as well, whether it be this intervention through a professor or a peer or a counselor, I think if you're going with good hearted intention of wanting to better yourself and to become a better person and contributor to the world, I mean, it'll unfold. I promise you it'll unfold and to stay determined. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for giving me hope. <laughs> and on that note, also, also, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, mentorship is so important. And I feel like um, time and time again, when I talk again to friends that did go to college, they say yeah. that they were surprised to know that, you know, home, despite how, how much as Mexican Americans, uh, we have, we have such a, a strong foundation of family. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard to really found a school support system within that same family, not to say that they don't care or to say that they don't understand. It's just that, well, they don't understand. You're just going through things that maybe they'll never experience or haven't experienced or won't even know. You know, even if they went to college in Mexico, it doesn't translate sometimes. So that right. said, <laughs> um, to someone that maybe, you know, is struggling to find mentorship and maybe doesn't have the time to do, um, you know, to stay after class every day for a couple hours because, you know, work or this or that. It, uh, what would you recommend? You know, someone, is there maybe forums on online or something that people can go to? Is there a better way or sort of a, in a way, a remote, that's the word I'm looking for, a remote yeah. way to still stay in contact with those around you or those right. from school? And you bring a good point because that that's another discussion of privileges. Like I have the time to go be a part of this meeting after my yeah. class and go to these events. And sometimes we have students who are hustling and working two to three jobs mm -hmm. and they don't have time to be part of those community events. And at the same time, we're in the middle of a pandemic that really doesn't lend itself for spaces outside of the home to create these relationships and these mentor opportunities. And my only advice right now, especially everything being virtual, is how can we use technology to stay connected and to start building community? And some of the ways I've seen students do that and some of the ways I've invited students to do that is come, you know, email your professor and see if they got some Zoom hours. You could just have a conversation about what it is you want to do um, in life beyond this course. Um, foster peer groups within your courses, like hit someone up that you might find something in connection with and say, hey, we should have like a Zoom study sesh. I don't know if that's corny or not, but <laughs> trying to use technology as a means of staying connected to people in the spaces that you're trying to thrive in seems to be really helpful for a lot of my students. They'll do Zoom study groups. They'll talk on chat or excuse me, they'll talk on Snapchat or um, Instagram, Google Docs. You know, they're trying to find ways to stay connected because, again, I always tell them when working and learning it collaboratively, you're going to be the most successful when you don't do it by yourself because you have that support. For forms, I myself haven't checked 
Um, it was just an example. I feel like no, for sure. I'm thinking like it, I'm. I'm assuming, and I'm pretty confident. Like Puente and Mecha are still kind of running online. Yeah. And I would I would check out your local clubs on mm-hmm. your campus um, on their website and just see what the virtual space for building those relationships is looking like, and like invest a few minutes to see if that's something that's worth, um, you know, dedicating some of your time to. And as you mentioned, you know, with COVID, in case, um, you know, anyone's been living under a rock for the last year, you mm-hmm. know, we are going through a pandemic and that, you know, we finished the semester and we're going into one pretty soon remote. And I'm talking about, you know, it wasn't just online school like it was before. This is all classes all the time. And right. is that something, what's your point of view towards remote learning so far? You know, you know, given with the pandemic, there isn't much of a choice, but what do you see as a benefit from maybe remote learning? Okay, so we want to go benefit route? Yeah, because they're going to be less. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll start with benefits and then we'll switch over to um, <laughs> all the stuff I'm sure you don't like. No, I, I like starting with the positive. Well, it depends from what perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an educator, I think it's really pushed me to be creative on how to build familia, how to build a community yeah. with my students through this tiny little camera, right, on our laptops. And I've had to be creative because my students can easily just turn on a black rectangle and then their name is there for the rest of the semester. So thinking of innovative ways um, and pushing myself to be in those creative spaces and to be fearless in those creative spaces, if that means I got to dress up for Halloween (laughs) and teach a class or I got to dress up as like Chicana Claus for the last day of, of class as they're submitting their finals or I don't know, popping up some memes. So pushing the creativity has definitely been a benefit. Um, it's pushed me to explore other means of how to get students to be engaged with curriculum beside being in the classroom and using my hands to gesture and utilizing the walls and the whiteboard how can we translate all of those tangible things into technology has definitely been a benefit um, and exercising equity in in pedagogy and the philosophy of teaching um, in in equitable ways, right? When I think of my students, again, I always tell my students they're the superheroes, they are um, the X-Force of um, education right now because Nobody has the best advice to give students uh, how to learn during a pandemic. I mean, this is not just learning virtually. It's learning during a time that requires them to survive and to keep their families surviving financially, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And we don't have the best advice. The only advice we got is to be supportive and to be flexible and to be understanding when they email you and say, hey, I tested positive for COVID. Can I get an extension? Absolutely. And I'm hoping from my students' perspective that they're seeing educators who are trying to be as compassionate as possible. I'm sure that's not the case for all um, scenarios, but I'm hoping that they're getting a lot of love and compassion via Zoom, via email. Um, And like I tell students, you are in a really unique time on figuring out how to make small spaces bigger to your advantage. How do we turn our home into a home that feeds a family, gets homework done, 
tunes into a Zoom lecture and becomes a space of rest and work. And again, my students are trying to find really unique, creative ways to do that. So positive for my students would be just making them real, real relentless and strong. And hopefully when we get out of all this ugly, you know, they're coming in way more excited to see an actual tangible room and to sit in a desk. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's more I can add to that, but that. No, that was great. I feel like, yeah. um, like you mentioned, you know, the philosophy of teaching, there's, there's so much that goes into wanting to become a teacher. I feel like it's obviously underappreciated, underpaid, you know, teachers do the most. And, uh, you know, especially with this, within this podcast, we appreciate everything you guys do. That mm -hmm. said, you know, I feel like a lot of times, you know, people aren't within their own heads and they might not be understanding the lengths that you're going through to try mm -hmm. to make a class interesting. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will put you on and just sort of leave it on the background, sure. you know, and it's not personal, you know, they have their own things going on. I'm sure. And like you mentioned, I mean, it's someone looking at a screen that maybe also does remote work. So they've been looking at that screen for hours, you know, or they have to help their kid, you know, get on their screen so they can go to school. It's just, it can be a lot. And I'm glad, you know, you're willing to go the extra mile. And I, from what I've heard, a lot of teachers do. And, and I'm For glad, sure. you know, like you said, it's the first semester of the pandemic. And it, it was a learning experience, I'm sure. But yep, we're all still learning. <laughs> exactly. But we're going in into a second one. So I feel like I'm hoping, you know, that there's this sort of curve or where people, you know, stop being sort of a, how, what, what would be the word? Um apathetic i guess and just think oh it's just one semester it won't matter i'll just ignore this one uh, we're going into our second one and who knows if we'll go yeah. into our third one so you know maybe people you know sign up on las pilas and we'll just start <laughs> start you know start caring maybe a little bit more but with that yeah. i actually wanted to talk about uh how to pull earth yeah how to pull apart hey, the earth you got a copy that's awesome actually i'm gonna be honest it's not mine it's uh jessica <laughs> my girlfriend. uh but she's um oh, she's a great fan. yeah she's a fan she actually was the one that told me about you and she wouldn't stop talking about your poetry and i was like well you know it'd be funny if we had her on and she was like ha 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 let me message her <laughs> you know and here we are i love it awesome. yeah no but actually you know her and i love uh poetry and mm -hmm. and we've actually had the discussion before and i'd like to have your your two cents on it. So poetry can sometimes be a little pedantic or at least have the sort of aura of being a little pedantic and a little bit ambiguous, you know, for a lot of people reading a haiku might not be enough and that might be entertaining, you know, mm -hmm. it, it much like seeing a piece of art in the wall, you know, a nice one when you see it, but it's mm -hmm. hard to distinguish them sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. to you, they all seem like art. Sure. You appreciate it, but it doesn't mean you get it. Right. So, in a few words, what would you say for someone that maybe hasn't been initiated to spoken word or poetry or anything like that? Um, what would you say or how would you break down the kind of work that you do? That's a great question. If I had to talk about like the book, like the work I'm doing in, in my books, I'm doing multiple things, right? Okay. And so one of the things is this exploration of self. Um, growing up in a conservative Latina household, right? Um, Catholic, um, female, and told to do three things like get good grades, do your chores, don't get pregnant, right? When you, when you grow up with a very narrow um, upbringing, 
you tend to kind of define yourself and imprison yourself within those walls of the possibility of what you could be. And so the, the work I'm trying to do in poetry is trying to find this kind of recklessness and um, connection back to childhood and freedom and what happens when you leave that suggested narrative that's been told your whole life and what does it mean to not be confined to those things in addition to that also creating allyship for people who might not have a connection to bilingualism code switching what it means to be chicana what it means to be female what it means to grow up in a border uh, town and i'm hoping that the work is building that allyship and understanding and awareness of of that culture at the same time also creating kind of a door with a welcome mat for the people that do get to read the book or do get to listen to me read a poem and they get to open that door when they hear a poem and i just get to say like welcome you're home i see you i know what you're going through uh, let's work this to, you know, let's work through it together through language and um, it's going to be okay and we're going to find joy in that, you know. And so I'm hoping that it's doing a little bit of everything, right? Grounding myself with my identity, the history of my ancestors, the history of self, creating that allyship of understanding and creating a door, a welcome home for those that need um, that connection to feel a little less lonely in the world, you know. And you mentioned earlier, you know, professors would put books in front of you of people that were like you. You know, is that a little bit of what inspired mm -hmm. you to write uh, a book? Is that something that you said, maybe I can be that person for somewhere else, for someone else? I remember my bachelor's, I never had an instructor that shared my story, but it was more the textbooks okay. that yeah. they put in front of me that helped me bridge those connections. It took one professor, uh, her name was Professor Sandra Dollar at Cal State San Marcos, where she encouraged me to do a master's of fine arts at San Diego State, which was an emphasis in poetry if I wanted to do so. And when I said, yeah, let's, let's figure this out together, um, it wasn't until I got handed more books during my master's on the various narratives of my peoples and my history and taking literature courses from like amazing professors like uh, Philip Serrato. And so I would, I would say more of that inspiration came from like the books handed to me yeah. and then trying to figure out how I can write something that hasn't been written, that I wanted to envision myself reading, reading a smaller version of myself reading that text. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, inspiration just came from like the literature and the language that was just thrown at me and me wanting to manifest my own version of that. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you do a lot of things with this book and I, I can yeah. tell, you know, it's it's a good read, but it's also it can be a little heavy when you relate so much to some of the things you're talking about, you know, and, it, right. and when I say relate, of course, you mentioned, you know, you're talking about being a, a, a from a conservative family, conservative Catholic family as a woman, you know, and I'm sure I can't necessarily relate mm -hmm. to like every single thing, but I can I can remember seeing that, you know, in my family. And that's when that's when it sort mm -hmm. of hits you because it's a perspective that maybe my sister experienced, you know, or maybe a prima or something like that. And it's again, it's it's good to relate to a book, but it can be a little bit hard to read sometimes because then it relates sure. too much. But it's great. And um, I actually wanted to ask here. Let me see if I can find it. You know, it's funny. I was just reading a different book 
the redaction is that I hadn't seen that before. That seems um, oh. is that a common thing now because this is uh, this is the first huh? book I saw it in, and I just really saw it in a in a different book, and I was wondering if that was pretty common. Am I just uninitiated on that? <laughs> yeah, so that's a form called a found poem, and mm-hmm. under that umbrella, it's called an erasure. An erasure oh, is when right. you take pre-existing texts and then kind of black out some of the language to create and resurrect like new meaning out of it. Gotcha. And so that that particular poem's an erasure from Gloria Anzaldúa's text, Borderlands La Frontera, yeah. and that becomes its own piece for the voice that wants to speak. That's great, and it's so creative. But yeah, I don't know. I remember seeing it and always catching my eye just because of the way it is. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's just conversation of language and who gets to speak English, who gets to speak Spanish, and what are the spaces that punish you for yeah. choosing which one you want to speak that day. You know, and on that same idea of creativity, uh, a lot of times when reading books or books on poetry, they can be pretty stagnant, you know, as far as the um, the way they're written down. It's always mm-hmm. especially down the middle and very pretty and very centered but this one uh jessica's and i one of our favorites eve's uh, ribcage oh yes tell me a little bit about that one just the layout and or explain it for the people that obviously aren't seeing this but hearing it and just a little bit of what led you to do that so eve's ribcage is in the form of what's called a contrapuntal a contrapuntal is when you have two or more columns of existing texts And it's kind of like choose your own adventure. The reader can read it standard, traditional, left to right, left to right. Or you can read the individual columns to get different messages from the piece. Now, what's interesting about Eve's ribcage is if we recall, um, you know, from the Bible, the story of Eve, who came from the rib of Adam. She eats, you know, the forbidden fruit, and now the world is damned to live in sin, right? Um, I worked on this piece actually outside of a bar right across the street from San Diego State University with one of my colleagues, phenomenal poet. His name's Hari Aluri. And he was really inspiring in terms of creating new forms, right? We had learned the craft of poetry and he had put into my head this idea of like breaking form or inventing new forms. And so you know, when we think binary at the moment, I was the female, he was the male. And he's like, all right, let's create a form together. And so we were like, let's do a rib cage. Mm-hmm. He had one side of the ribs. I had one side of the ribs. We did like a seven syllable count to represent the number of ribs. Yeah. And then we started just having this conversation about deities and God and the manifestation of God and security and playing with the land and how that works together. And so anytime I have a poetry reading and people request that poem to be read, I always have to say, I need a second voice because it is two right. people coming together to manifest it. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where it goes. Yeah, um, no, it's great. So- I, again, it also comes down to catching your eye. You know, I, I remember it was one of, when I grabbed your book, one of the first things I do usually, especially with poetry books, because for my at least for me sometimes i i don't read it through one way you know i kind of mm-hmm. just jump around just to see get the feel of it and mm-hmm. besides the erasure that was one of the things that caught my eye and i, I thought mm-hmm. how creative you know again sometimes poetry books despite liking poetry can be a little stagnant and mm-hmm. that's great you know it makes me want to read it that much more and the fact that it took me a while to realize that it was sort of choose your own adventure 
because mm-hmm. uh, I was like, how do I, how do I even read this? Like, where do I start? Where do I finish? <laughs> and I felt like I felt bad because again, Jessica told me you're just, just read it, you know, because I mm-hmm. believe she was at one of your um, readings and she had mentioned that you had said that. And I was like, no, I want to read it right because I want to get it, mm-hmm. you know, but again, I, I didn't need to, I didn't have to yeah. sort of put myself in, um, put myself in that box and just sort of enjoy it as is. So that's great. And, and, and I mean, that's the beauty of poetry is that it's a genre that lends itself to not be read linear and you yeah. can jump around and appreciate um, whatever message or story or form um, wants to give you a gift that day. And it doesn't necessarily have to go from beginning to end. So I love your method of just jumping around and enjoying <laughs> yeah. what speaks to you that day. So that's great. Yeah. And again, I, at first I thought it was a little disrespectful to the book itself because, like, <laughs> oh, you're not appreciating every single poem and, you know, you're not yeah. taking your time to, you know, really take in everything. But it's like, no, it's not that. It's just that I know what's going to catch my eye. And mm-hmm. you know, I guess a comparison would be sort of to an album. Uh, you know, yeah. you can love the artist, you can love their music, but you're definitely listening to some songs more than others, you know, and that's no diss on the artist. It's just you like the hits. <laughs> it's OK to like the hits. And again, us as artists is also honoring, you know, our readers and viewers of our work that they're different learners and different observers of how they're going to engage with their art and to honor, you know, that process for you is super important. And so I appreciate you being honest and just being like, I jumped around, you know, (laughs) but that's, you know, an honoring and a recognition of like how you like to engage with art. And that's cool too. You you could do that. Yeah. You know, um, also I wanted to, Ask about your notes page. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's obviously it has pretty useful things like explaining Tenochtitlan. Yeah. You know, and or Hija de la Cosecha and things like that. Why? What is it besides explaining like those um, Spanglish words or Spanish words? There's also a lot of little notes. What is it about them that you think was uh, essential to adding them to the book? Right. And these are decisions we have to make as artists, right? Course, is, yeah. you know, if we write bilingual, do we translate? What does it do if we don't? And a lot of times within the book itself is I left code switching, go from English to Spanish without an explanation yeah. because I wanted this other language to be its own present um, identity without an explanation. However, at the end of the book, there are certain poems that have historical context that are important to me, kind of like a history book that was never written um, and I needed to write it. And so some of the poems do the work of identifying um, my bisabuela who you know, married a Spaniard was, and I want that information to be documented for our own historical visibility. When thinking about you know, more of the history of our indigenous peoples, uh, like Tenochtitlan, it is a welcoming not to people who feel necessarily 100% outsiders to that history, but also people who are part of that history and don't know that they are. Sure. I want to offer a couple footnotes to be like, yo, these are your ancestors. Here are the terms and here are their origins and an understanding. Because a lot of times we grow up marking Hispanic on the box or we grow up just being like, oh, I'm Mexican or oh, I'm Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. But there's a complexity and a celebration to that. And it's where we taught our histories of beyond the American version, right? And so I wanted the notes page to be this kind of small documentation of history that we can acknowledge and witness because a lot of times we're not fed that when we go into education. 
And yeah, I just wanted to give that to readers who might be able to identify or again, create that sense of allyship who are like, oh, I didn't know this thing existed. Right. Now I know. No, I think that's great. Especially like, as you mentioned, you know, being able to make sort of letting people in on the joke, you know, like sometimes mm-hmm. references don't, for a lot of us, you know, they're pretty common, but people don't, might not even know what bisabuela is, you know? Right. A lot of us didn't get to have a bisabuela, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely understand and it definitely seems useful and also sort of a tool to appreciate an art that you are already enjoying, which is great. You know, it's sort of when you find, <laughs> this is such a weird, uh, uh, comparison but it's like when you find like an interview of an artist that you already like it's just more content of the same thing you know it's yeah it's, it's the special sure. features you know what i'm saying yeah. on that DVD, you know? the yeah the voiceover narrative and all that stuff yes no but with that i was actually going to ask also you know you like you mentioned a lot of the code switching is unapologetic you know you it's right in it doesn't uh, shy away from being mm-hmm. very spanglish very niche if i may mm-hmm. say i mean i don't know if that's something you had in mind when writing it as i don't know if it was an artistic choice but you know spanglish does uh, sort of isolate the book to people that may either be interested in spanglish or mm-hmm. spanglish speakers themselves is that something mm-hmm. that maybe crossed your mind or was it always kind of like no this is my book and this is how i want it <laughs> <laughs> i mean here's the thing coming to terms with spanglish Um, again, I go back to the the scholar that again, was like a huge inspiration on how I wanted to explore myself. Um, Gloria Anzaldúa talks about the multiplicity of languages that exist on the tongue and that we often do a disservice that when we are in spaces that are unfamiliar, we turn the switch off to certain languages because we want to adapt to the environment. She's saying that we're doing an injustice to our identities when we shut those languages off. And so the book is it, when we're when it's code switching when it's going from english to spanish it is grounding itself that this isn't slang this is this is a language this is a language of an individual of a voice that was brought up between two cultures that clash and at times um, come together in really beautiful ways and when i was writing the book i wanted to honor that language where that's how I spoke at home, you know, and that's how my abuela spoke and that's how my mama spoke. And that's how I was taught two languages. Um, this idea of, you know, I had a piece of pan dulce ain't going to translate the same as like, Oh, I had a piece of sweet bread. Like the, the home, the hominess of that, the, the cultural significance, um, the memory, the nostalgia, you know, becomes no more when we do that. And so thinking about when to do the switching of languages was really this kind of natural honoring of what took place in my upbringing and which words felt like home and which ones honored my ancestors. Now when offering the book to people who might not be into code switching, that's okay too. Not every piece of art is going to satisfy everyone. Art is subjective, but I'm hoping that they can push beyond that and ask question well why didn't they translate it for me and why might they be feeling that in that moment and how can i push through to make understanding on the unfamiliar and well with that actually i wanted to ask would you think then that if they knew who the author is and maybe a little bit about you they'd be able to appreciate the book a bit more or would you think that the book is a good gateway into understanding who you are I think it I think it depends on who my audience is. I've had a lot of times where p- 
people reach me on my Instagram or send me emails and they just say, I've never met you, but this book transformed my understanding of border politics, transformed my understanding on the oppression and hardship of our migrant community members. And at the same time, it's always this kind of transformative, further connected familia connection. When I get to read poems and talk about myself and the manifestation of the book and why the book needed to exist and the origins of certain poems and how they came together, there's always this more like humanized connection that happens when we have the book and the author together in the space working together. So I've seen, I've seen both. I've seen both ways be magical for yeah. different readers. Well, uh, a good example of that would be like performing. Uh, we're not performing, mm -hmm. but reading them, right? Yeah. Uh, back in the day, you know, with uh, pre-COVID and Queen Bees mm -hmm. you know, at their old time, um, you know, it was one of the ways I really appreciated taking in poetry, you know, just because it was, it wasn't just um, obviously very entertaining, but it was, you could really feel the emotion that was meant to be behind those words. And that carries mm -hmm. a lot of weight, especially when maybe, again, you might not be familiar with poetry or knowing how to read poetry. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that always crosses my mind. It's like, how would the author read it? You know, I want the pauses. I want the uh mm -hmm. i want the i don't know the exclamations i want to know if i should be sure. crying or laughing you know um but then again uh reading it is just as good and it gets it lets you be a little creative you know because it says mm -hmm. it, you know if i might be reading a book that you might perform a little sad but i may enjoy it and laugh the whole time and that's sort of the beauty of uh of poetry as it is right there's no right way to read it i think yep I agree. And shout out to Queen Bees, because again, they were always a home that kind of became my home away from home to play with language and explore language. But yeah, that's kind of the difference between reading on page and reading on stage, as they say it, is that the, you hope the form on the page honors kind of the speed or the tempo or the emotion or the roller coaster that you want to convey. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, based on your reader, that's okay too. But when you get to perform or you get to read, again, there's this other magical realm of seeing body gestures and seeing the voice and the emotion in the room and the echoing and the applause and the booing and the finger snapping <laughs> that really makes it no longer a poem, but becomes this like community experience of storytelling, which again goes back yeah. to the origins of oral storytelling and the magic of that and honoring that and that, you know, stories can do that good work. Definitely. I feel like, again, it's just, uh, it's a vibe. There's no other way to say it, but it's just, mm -hmm. it really does become a vibe. And um, I, I really liked it. And I've tried a, a little bit, um, a few like Zoom um, meetings of it, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. But of course it's a little different and it just makes you miss people a lot more. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. It's a little hard to appreciate it when you only got shoulders up, you know, yeah. and you don't got the mic and the speakers and the yeah, DJ in the, the background. And yeah, it's a completely different atmosphere, but you know, uh, we make do, we do the best we can, you know? Yeah. I actually also wanted to ask how to pull apart the earth. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you got the name for the book? Sure. Um, well, a couple things. One, I'm a big fan of, um, Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Um, I can get that from the, I actually, that's crazy. I can actually get that from the, yeah, from the illustration. I thought it was sort of a, 
it was a random guess, but that's kind of cool. I got that right. Okay, sorry. Awesome. Go ahead. Yeah, so I studied that in grad school and this idea of the female protagonist needing to um, come to terms with who she is by going down the rabbit hole, right? And using that kind of metaphor for understanding, again, my own voice and the speaker within the book is that we have to pull things apart to understand how they function. Because if we only look at and examine the world's surface level, we're never really going to get to the heart of that understanding. Yeah. And how to pull apart the earth, the, the poems almost felt like instructional on how to survive this, how to appreciate yeah. this, how to find this language, how to come to terms with, you know, being Chicana, how to understand the landscape of, of where you were brought up, how to examine the social injustice of deporting and border walls and machismo and the how to pull apart the earth was just kind of this kind of honoring or ode to what the, I hope the poems were trying to do is like, how do we pull these complicated ideas apart? Like you had said, David, you know, sometimes they're really sad to read and you gotta have to take a minute because you're okay. connecting, which is a good response. Yeah. But then how do we make the return back to the book to continue to pull things apart, make it messy, and then pull those fragments together to kind of, again, ground ourselves with an understanding of who we are. So how to pull apart the earth is just take, taking all the hard to, pulling it apart, understanding and finding joy and celebration within those themes. Yeah, that's great. It had, it had more the, I thought it would have a good meaning. And I think it had a lot more than I expected, which is great. <laughs> uh, yay, that's a good thing. Good. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask, you know, given that you are uh, an educator and you yourself mm -hmm. are an author, what would you recommend as far as like quarantine reads, you know, something that, you know, might help us take in a little bit of our own culture. I know that I'm very guilty of it. I, I love reading, but sometimes, you know, I just don't know who to look up as far as like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Chicano, Chicana um, or Chicken X authors or just someone that might have the same experiences that I do. Should I be checking um, local people? Should I be, what should I be looking for? I guess is a better question. Absolutely. There's so many books. So obviously it's going to come down to the reader genre of what they like. Um, if you're looking for POC book recommendations, I highly recommend to follow Libro Mobile. They are a small POC uh, Chicana owned bookstore and they're always throwing a bunch of book recommendations of yeah. the experiences of our people and they're always going anywhere from children's literature to graphic novels, from poetry books to fiction. And that might be a good place to start to find books that might fit a particular reader within those experiences. Um, going from there, I mean, if you're looking for another poetry read, I highly recommend a local poet. Um, he's in Texas now. His name's Alfredo Aguilar. He actually just came out with a book called On This Side of the Desert which is a phenomenal book about going from boyhood to manhood, innocence to experience, as well as kind of embracing, um, you know, the Mexican American identity. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, I always love saying, find a good book you love, but support it through your local and independent bookstores. Of because, course, yeah. you know, the struggle's real for them. <laughs> Buy direct from your authors. Yeah. Um, you know, cause 
um, Amazon's a beast right now. And so, <laughs> yeah, they're not, um, they don't need the Bezos doesn't need the extra money. <laughs> no, nah, they don't. They don't. But yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of, there's, there's so much local talent here in San Diego alone. Um, I would just kind of reach out to folks locally and, you know, who's got a book, how can we support? Yeah. And uh, I think you mentioned it, you know, with supporting local talent, a lot of times we, I'll use myself as an example. I'm a little intimidated as to reaching out, you know, and I understand mm-hmm. that of course they appreciate my business and, mm-hmm. um, and all that, but sometimes asking questions can be a little intimidating because I don't want to bother. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody has a, you know, a sort of a Q and a, or, you know, or anything like that where I can sort of reach out. So, so sometimes would you say that, uh, I, I know I did it <laughs> for this interview, but would you say that reaching out through social media is um is an appropriate way to do it or would you think it's sort of mm-hmm. might, might get lost in a lot of dms or what would you recommend right. well my my suggestion like i tell all my students when they're trying to reach out to me they say i don't want to i don't want to email you i don't want to bother you on a saturday and it's like look this is what i do for a living whether <laughs> it be art or whether it be education yeah. you're never a bother that that would be my first you know piece of advice on how to proceed is like you're never a bother you're reaching out because you want to build community and you want to celebrate um what these folks are up to yeah step two would be thinking about all avenues of how to contact a particular artist some folks are pretty fast in emails some folks love to a dm on their instagram yeah my last piece of advice would be as long as you approach the contact and invitation to collaborate respectfully yeah you know not just being like hey sup be on my podcast you know (laughs) if you have this kind of you know honoring of like invitation that you know if if i'm communicating correctly you know or that's getting across it's like just try a little i guess is what you're saying yeah just try it out (laughs) you know worst case worst case you get a no but you you never get that what if you never get lingering what if you know i live i live in what ifs if i could tell you the amount of times i I don't send yeah you got it just just email folks on all avenues of contact and just just be honest and come through and um you know you may or may not get a response but most of the time folks are going to say yes because they want to collaborate you know? No, definitely. And again, um, even as a as someone that's wanting to just consume the art, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'd love to ask so many questions. But again, it, it always crosses my mind like, oh, they got better things to do. And then that mm-hmm. and then that shies me away from even buying the product, which sucks because then they don't get, you know, they don't get the support. And then I don't get the piece of art that I wanted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a creator yourself or someone that's creative in general, you know, how are you finding the quarantine? Would you say it sort of feels, you know, with all the maybe some time that you might have in your hands, does it feel your creative bug or is it sort of hard to be staying at home and be creative at the same time? I think both. So, you know, when the pandemic happened, um, it was it was about before summertime. And so I don't work during the summer because mm. then the summertime is where I create and the summertime is when I travel and do readings and book signings. And that's my income for the summer. And so to have the pandemic happen and everything cancel, I had no income. Right. And so us artists had to get really creative on how to do that. And while we're trying to be creative on how to survive, 
this idea of, oh, you got lots of time to write and create now yeah. was this kind of false and, you know, <laughs> fantasy of like, it's not going to happen because at the same time you have to maintain a household, maintain your health, maintain your family, cook, you know, cook healthy meals, uh, check in on everyone's hearts and make sure everybody's doing okay. Check in on yourself, self-care. And, you know, I think for a lot of us artists, survival was kind of the primary focus for a while. Yeah. And now that we're kind of balancing how to navigate a kitchen to feed your family into now a podcast, right? Is <laughs> it, it really gives you time to think about how, like I had mentioned earlier, how do we make small spaces bigger in our art, particularly in, in during a time of pandemic and quarantine. And so it's definitely giving me a lot of time to meditate on how to use language to do those things. And to have me pay attention to the really small things I've been overseeing and how can I honor the smallness of things to be things we can show gratitude towards. So that's been really exciting um, is like now getting to kind of meditate on what a pandemic does for an artist in the lens of how we see the world. No, definitely. I feel like adapting is definitely a useful tool in your uh, well, in your toolbox, of course. <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. I guess it's sort of a way of saying um, code switching goes beyond words, right? I mean, it's about really right. adapting to your surroundings and hustling, really. I mean, artists mm -hmm. are, if not anything else, they're hustlers. You know, they find a way. And I, I think it's great, you know, that you find do, in a way, find time to appreciate that despite the shittiness of the pandemic, you know, you look back at yourself and say, hey, I, I got that done. That's amazing. And I, mm -hmm. I, this is sort of a struggle I've been having with myself, you know, because I told myself I was going to start working out at the beginning of the pandemic. Didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So I looked back <laughs> and the only thing I can think of is of all the things I didn't do while the pandemic. So we knew it was going to happen for a while. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling myself, you're going to do this, this and that, you know, and I didn't, well, I mm -hmm. didn't do all of them out of five. Maybe I did one or two. And mm -hmm. I think as of this new year, I told myself, you know, you know what? You did two of them. That's awesome. <laughs> you did yep. something. So, you know, this podcast being one of them. So it's like, you know what? It's okay. I feel like it's okay yep. to pat yourself on the back every once in a while. And even though I used to think that, you know, having that chip on my shoulder of, you know, you should be doing more. I thought that was good. It was um, being ambitious. It was keeping me on check, but sometimes it's a little bully, you know, mm -hmm. you have to know how to zone it out a little bit. Just like you mentioned for self-care, just to make sure that I'm okay. And then just right. get back into the grind of it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so happy you patted yourself on the back for that. Cause again, the pacing and the expectation of success looks completely different during the <laughs> pandemic. And yeah, so of course. if you got two of those thing, things done out of the five, that's yeah. two things that didn't exist before. You know? <laughs> exactly. So I'm so happy you're seeing it from that perspective. No, thank you. And as you mentioned, I, I feel like, you know, we appreciate the things that we didn't have before, but also we get to realize, you know, that, you know, we'll check ourselves, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Now, now that you know that you, there is a point where you can stop doing certain things as soon as mm -hmm. everything opens up, you know, I'm going to be in the gym all day because <laughs> I didn't appreciate it when it wasn't there. But no, I, I agree with you though. There's a lot of uh, things that we have to consider, especially, you know, financially and just within your home, making sure everything, everybody's okay. It's something that people forget. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it comes with privilege. Of course, not everybody has to deal with those sort of things, but for those of us that do, you right. know, the pandemic wasn't a, a vacation by all means. It was, you know, it was a struggle right. for a lot of people. It was, it meant um, 
being kicked out of their home for a lot of people meant being bankrupt. So yep. we do whatever we do come away from it. Hopefully it's a little bit of a reality check on our own privilege, you know, cause I definitely got it. And the more I hear about it on the news, you know, the more thankful I am of what I do still have. Absolutely. And that's why I always tell my partner when we have dinner, it's like, we got to say grace tonight and just be grateful that we got a meal that I have this laptop to stay connected. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had students hitting me up and saying, I don't have a charger. I don't have a laptop. I don't have a camera to stay connected. Um, I can't afford to pay the internet, you know? And so I, I, like you said, David, I think it's definitely a really important time to meditate on our own privileges and how can we use those privileges to support others who are struggling um, in ways that are safe um, for ourselves, you know, during this time. Yeah, definitely. And even the word safe, you know, it's just scary sometimes, you know, because that's really what it is. I mean, we're trying to survive. We're trying to be safe, trying Mm -hmm. to be creative, trying to be all at once and it can be a bad yeah. And, and, and that's what I said about folks for 2021 is like, if it, if we get out of this in 2021, yeah. maybe, maybe not, is that we're going to come out being master multitaskers <laughs> yeah, no kidding. because we have mastered how to turn various spaces into multiple purposes of uses. Yeah. And um, yeah, everybody's just getting real, real creative on how to execute certain things and accomplish certain things in the confines of their home, whatever home looks like. And it's been pretty inspiring to see that happening. Yeah. And talk about your house being uh, multi-purpose, huh? I mean, it, it really shows, uh, it, you know, I've always heard that your, you know, your room should be your sanctuary or your home in general mm-hmm. should be your sanctuary. So that's why mm-hmm. when people were telling me that they were working remotely, it just sort of gave me a bit of a cringe feeling because it's like, oh man, I don't want to bring that energy of work and being up mm-hmm. and being bored into my home. That just seems it seems stressful to be honest. I, I, I understand that a lot of people maybe are introverted and they were excited about that. But for me, it just felt, it felt a little scary, but from what I've heard, you know, people are finding a way to sort of maybe change their room a little bit during work and then change it back or sit in different forms. And I feel like that's so cool that we're learning to adapt to something so unprecedented, of course, but also just out of the blue. I mean, people just sort of cope with it, which is great. Yeah, no, it's, again, it's been such a phenomenal experience to see my students trying to figure out how to, you know, my students who are parents, you know, take care of their two-year-old and participate collaboratively on Zoom. And then at the same time, you hear them like stirring pots of caldo and like serving their kids, you know, food and, you know, their dad in the backyard working on construction, you know, it's... It's been inspiring to see that despite the chaos or the loudness of what home looks like is that they're pushing through because they want to be here to learn and to take something from it. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been, again, like I said, it's been really inspiring to see and witness. No, I I can imagine. I mean, you know, the human spirit is unbreakable and I'm, I'm always mm-hmm. glad to hear those sort of stories. And like you mentioned, you know, these people want an, an education, obviously. They're going through all these hoops and they deserve it. I'm glad they're going through it. And it really checks mm-hmm. me because it's like, man, they can do it. I can do it. You know, it's just little things that put you, you know, over it. And I just, you just have to sort of talk to yourself every once in a while. Convince yourself of what you already know, you know, is that you can. Yep. So. Yeah, you can do it, David. And like I always, <laughs> like I always tell the students, I'm like, look. 
if you aren't constantly putting your se- yourself in a space of discomfort, yeah, obviously in a safe way, right? <laughs> you're never going to push yourself to see your potential. Yeah. If you're too comfortable, constantly comfortable, you are now subjecting yourself to like not climb the higher mountain. And so that's my invitation to you, David, is like, yeah. or to anyone listening, you know, that <laughs> see, yeah, that see felt, what your comfort zone looks like and, and what are you doing to, to be uncomfortable again, like in a safe place, but like to push yourself to be a better version of yourself and for others. Yeah. yeah I was going to say a moment there, I felt very like therapy, but Thanks. No, I definitely, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And it's just one of those things where, you know, it's gonna, it's always like, oh, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Mm-hmm. It's just about doing it and, yep. and keeping That's up, it. With it, you know, falling yep. off and getting back up. All yep. that stuff. And but, the fall is a part of, part of it. Like you have to fall, you have to yeah. fail. You, that, know? you learn probably more for the falls, right? I mean, I'm absolutely. Sure that's you don't, you don't get a success or a win until you fall multiple times. You got the bruises, the band aids, all the vocals, <laughs> you know, and the sana sanas before we can get to that success. And so, um, yeah. yes, we will honor and applaud the falls and the failures. They all contribute to that. No, that's great. Anyway, Carla, thank you so much for doing this. I know we were all over the place with the dates and then me struggling with <laughs> getting on today. But uh, where could we find you? Where could we look you up for your work or, you know, your socials, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, and thank you again, David, for having me and working with my schedule because it has been a little chaotic. No, um, thank you for the work that you're doing and acknowledging a lot of the good work that folks are doing um, in San Diego and North County. Uh, folks can find me on my Instagram. That's at Carla Flaca with a K13. So Carla Laka with a K13. You can also um, contact me and find some of my work on my website, which is www.carlacordero.com. Um, I'm also available on like Facebook if y'all like working through there as well. And yeah, please know like beyond this podcast that I'm a forever resource um, to you, David, or to folks that are Thank listening you. that if y'all Thank ever want to collaborate or need to share a story, I'm always here to support folks. Of course. No, thank you so much again, just for being on. You have no idea how happy it made us that you were able to do this. And of course, we'd happy to work with your schedule. Again, really appreciate the book. Uh, it's a great read for anyone who wants to check it out, How to Pull Apart the Earth. Where can we find that? There's two ways. So you can contact me directly and I could sell to you directly. And you can do that through my website or my Instagram account. Or the other way is um, getting on notacult.media, which is the publisher located in Los Angeles who published my book. So that would be notacult.media. And you could also buy from them direct. Great. Thanks again, Carla. Awesome. Thank you, David. Have a good one.